for a lot of people to start with that initial cash cushion, it might take you a year to save it. And then after you've done that and you're not living paycheck to paycheck anymore and you have a good cushion there for, you know, hard times. This is the Hello 20s podcast. My name is Jan and I'm your host. I'm a corporate professional during the day, a digital content creator by night, and really just a 20-something year old trying to navigate life while sprinkling a little knowledge and wisdom here and there. Let's face it, we don't have it all figured out, but we can learn a little from each other along the way. And I'm so glad you are tuning in on today's episode. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Hello 20s. I hope you are all doing well today. Before I get into this episode and introduce our guest today, I want to remind you all that the Hello 20s podcast just launched a website. It's hello20spodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. I really had fun designing it and making it reflect um, this podcast. If you are interested in being a guest, there is also a form that you can fill out and submit. You can also sign up for the email newsletters if you do you will receive a freebie that I created it's a guide to daily journaling and it has the why the how the questions that I think can really help you reflect deeper on top of that you will receive emails at the end of the month with the recaps of that month's episode as well as additional resources links and any information that I'm not going to share anywhere else so definitely sign up so you don't miss out also, if you enjoyed this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and leave a review. That would help a lot and we can share these episodes to others who may need it. If you are listening right now, share it on your social media, tag me and I'll reshare it because I always love getting tagged and seeing who's listening. Okay, now that we have all that said and done, today we are going to talk about money. Making money and talking about money is such a taboo topic sometimes. People don't like talking about money, they don't like talking about debt, and sometimes they don't like talking about how much they are earning, which I understand. It can be uncomfortable sometimes, um, but I think when we are able to be a little bit more open and transparent about this subject, we are able to learn more and share advice on how to be more financially abundant abundant and free. I mean, when I first started this podcast almost two years ago, the topic of money was something that I was like, I'm not going to talk about it because one, I personally don't know what I would even ask and how to talk about money in a way that felt comfortable for everyone. And two, who do I even ask to come on and talk about this? (laughs) But fortunately enough, I think things always align at the right time and the universe really brought Leanne and I together when I felt like, all right, this is actually a important topic to talk about especially in your early 20s and even mid 20s because this is when a lot of us will start to have bills that we have to pay and we are starting to have some financial responsibilities so this is the perfect time to set yourself straight and create a solid financial foundation for yourself. Being rich is trying to save as much money as you can from your paycheck, but I think we should also strive to be wealthy and not just rich. The difference is when you are wealthy, you learn to be wise with your money and you have your money work for you and not just the other way around. So today our guest is Leanna Hawkins. She has worked in the finance industry since she was 19 years old. She worked in the stock market and consulted with many financial companies from the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. She has over a decade years of experience and she is also a financial literacy author. Her book is titled Young, Fun, and Financially Free. In this episode, we are going to talk about saving, debt, credit, and investing. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hi, Leanna. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I told my friends like I'm having someone come on and we're going to be talking about personal finance because we were talking about how you know we learned personal finance in high school and maybe we've taken a class in college but we don't really take it that seriously until we're in our early 20s or even mid 20s because that's when we are slowly getting you know financially responsible so they're really excited to hear this episode Um, we're going to be talking about savings credits and investing so before we get started I would love for you to tell us about your business Blackhawk Financial and how you got started with that 
So I have been in finance um, for my whole career. So I'm 33 in a couple weeks. And oh, I happy early birthday. Yeah, it's a early Virgo birthday. <laughs> so I have been yeah in finance since I was 19, working full time in the stock market and doing investor relations, marketing, sales. So a lot of the sort of relationships and communications types of jobs within financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And I've lived, I grew up in Vancouver in Canada, actually. And since then, I've lived in Toronto, France, London, New York, LA, um, and traveled a lot for work. And yeah, yeah. Lived in different places. So I've had some great experiences. Um, my last full-time job was working in London in finance there. And when I came back to North America about seven years ago, I decided I was just, I mean, I was only 26, which is pretty young for the career. Uh, for any career, but I was feeling a little burnt out. You know, I was working like traditional finance hours there, 12 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and I just decided I wanted to do my own thing. And luckily, because of the network that I have and sort of the um, tenacity and persistence that I had in reconnecting with old networks, when I came back to North America, I got an opportunity to have a business development role for a client out of Chicago and a financial client and to do some marketing for them in Canada and be in charge of the marketing and business development for their Canadian business. So that was my first big opportunity to work for myself from the West Coast, Vancouver mm -hmm. in Canada, but still have this client in Chicago and go to Chicago and travel around to this client and do it on my own accord. So it was sort of a, a natural entrepreneurship opportunity because then Someone just said, well, if you're working for this firm and they're paying you as a consultant, like you should open up a corporation or open up a, a business number, or get a, a number, or get some sort of business um, structure so that you have better tax advantages. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I should. And then mm -hmm. I, I just did it. And then I called it Blackhawk Financial because my last name is Hawkins. And when I was probably 19 working with brokers and stuff in the stock market, they used to call me Little Hawk. I was this oh. <laughs> woman in the industry and then Hawk Financial was already taken the name legally. So I needed to find another descriptor word for Hawk Financial. And I also like the company BlackRock and I wanted to work there when I was in high school because they're the biggest um, financial institution in the world, over $7 trillion in assets under management. They issue a lot of ETFs and, you know, new investor type of products. So yeah. I always loved BlackRock and yeah, I just decided to call it BlackHawk. And the the rest of the seven years history is kind of just history now. Um, <laughs> still working for myself, still have lots of clients in marketing and business development and finance. And that kind of rolled into writing Young, Fun, and Financially Free, my book, three years mm -hmm. ago, um, or I guess two and a half years ago, it actually came out. And all the proceeds of that go to the WE Charity. And um, that was that's been a great partnership. And then just doing lots of media and public education since then. So yeah, it's been a bit of a trip the last seven years going from consulting and working on my own to now doing a lot more in the media space and in education, but I really enjoy it. You're doing a great job too. Like I really admire your work. So going into, we're going to talk a little bit about savings. Um, what advice do you have for someone who is trying to cut down on their spending? Because I know in your book, you mentioned a lot of us have this keeping up with the Jones mentality. Well, first of all, thank you so much for getting the book and reading it. Again, yeah. all go to charity and and I just, I'll quickly mention the reason why I decided to do that is because when it comes to saving, spending, investing, like most people think these are somewhat complicated topics. They're really not. Like you really can learn basics. Like in my book, it's maybe a three to five hour read and it's super simple. And if you're in, I truly believe that if you're in a Western civilized country, like Canada, the US, you know, UK, Australia, anywhere like that you have the opportunities to be able to change your financial state and change your life. And mm -hmm. there are so many opportunities that we have here in this part of the world to be able to change our circumstances versus, you know, the people that the money from the book goes to in the We charity, they support and build villages and sustainable economies and income opportunities for people in third world countries and primarily in Kenya. And we just have to remember that there's hundreds of millions of people around the world that will never 
almost likely never be able to change their financial circumstances and their life mm -hmm. circumstances. And we have so many opportunities here and that should never be taken for granted. So just a little bit of a reminder to everyone that hears about or reads the book that, you know, and no matter what situation you're in right now, credit card debt, car loan, student loan, um, minimum wage job, whatever it is, there's always opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, in terms of savings, like that's really where you start off. You go to school, you come out of school with maybe some student loan debt, maybe not, but now you're getting a job and you really actually have to figure out, okay, so how much is my rent? How much is my groceries every month? Um, how much is transportation? Those three big, biggest things are the biggest expenses every month, your food, shelter, water, and how to get around. Um, mm -hmm. beyond that is all the things like entertainment and how much money can or should I allocate to savings? Um, really in terms of just a general guideline for that, most professionals in the industry would say 10 to 20% is an amazing amount to save. Um, and yeah. that's ideal. And, you know, even if you're, you know, pretty fresh out of school, one of your first jobs, you don't have a ton of extra money left over every month because maybe you're living in an expensive city and instead of, you know, another thing they say, you know, the average um, maximum amount of your income you should be spending on your housing, whether that's mortgage, rent, um, whatever it might be, is 30%. But maybe you live in San Francisco or Manhattan because that's where the, the best design jobs were that you wanted. You really wanted to live in Manhattan or wherever. Um, some people in those areas that are more expensive, um, you can probably be spending up to maybe 40% of your income just on your, your housing alone. But then maybe you don't go out and get a car loan or lease on a car. You just stick to using the subway and um, public transportation only. So those are the kind of things you have to really start thinking of as priorities. What is a priority for your lifestyle, what you want? And in my book, I call that financial nirvana. Like, what do you want your life to look like? figure out the expenses part first and how to keep mm -hmm. that as small as possible and then really aim to start saving 10 to 20%. Yeah, I agree. And I think what people kind of expect is they go to someone who like a financial um, advisor and they kind of just expect someone to lay it out for them. But these are like your own lifestyle. You have to figure these out. And you also have to have that self-control to not impulse buy as well, you know, to save that money. Yeah. And that's been hard, like with COVID and stuff right now too. Like <laughs> I swear, even, even for me as an expert, luckily most of the, most of the time I do have the disposable income to to buy what I want, but I choose not to buy everything that's on sale online. But every every store, every brand has had major online sales in the yeah. last um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I thought I would hard. be saving money during like these last few months, but I've realized I've spent about the same amount as if it I didn't have yeah. like if we weren't in quarantine. So A I lot agree. Of people have like loungewear at home <laughs> is like a tie-dye suit of everything. Yeah. Um, like a lot of people are spending on that because one, maybe they're bored. Maybe you're at home on your computer all like a lot more than you used to be um, rather than out and about with your friends, walking around, doing whatever. And um, yeah, people are online shopping. So you have to learn what's really important. And actually, even though I have been doing a bit of online shopping, not a ton, um, living in New York where I am in Manhattan, I've saved money going for drinks, you know, there's no mm -hmm. lounges or bars open with friends on Friday, Saturday night. Um, so you can save a bit of money that way by just going right now to a patio is all we have open, go to a patio and have one or two glasses of wine and an appetizer, that kind of thing. And a lot of these things are so small. And even now in my thirties, a lot of my friends in their twenties here in the city and elsewhere in the country, like they still don't think of the little things as something like everybody here in New York will like spend $200 every weekend. This is sort of before COVID on like five drinks a night and dinner, like five, five drinks and dinner in New York city is 150 bucks guaranteed. Um, and you know, some people are doing that on Friday and Saturday night and two drinks and dinner on Wednesday night. Like these things really add up in, in every city of the country too, not just New York. New York is just an example of where it happens to be, wildly expensive same with dc but yeah. you know it's these little things like finding little ways like when i was in my 20s i would really focus on 
especially because I, I've always been into like a wealthy lifestyle, W-E-L-L, mm-hmm. so living healthy and wealthy. Um, I like cooking at home. Like I don't mind having like chicken and vegetables or a salad or a wrap or whatever I want to do at home. And then I'll go meet my friends when they're like almost done dinner and I'll just have drinks because that's, yeah. I just kind of want to, I want to have a social time. I want to have a couple glasses of wine with them. But, you know, again, in New York, the actual dinner part is like an entree is going to run you 40 bucks. So, you know, it's just making those little changes, finding ways to still enjoy your life. Even right now, I think it's awesome that so many people are just bringing like drinks and activities and friends and stuff and meeting up in Central Park. Like people, I live right next to Central Park. So I used to try to do that. But everybody would, everyone would just be like, oh, well, we're going to this you know, cool new bar downtown. And I would be saying like, okay, didn't you just get laid off last week or like last <laughs> month? Like, weren't you just, weren't you just complaining that you can't pay your credit card bill? Like, you know, it's things like that, that it's, that's really the basics. Like that is the base of being a financially responsible adult at any age is living within your means and finding other ways to enjoy your life where you don't have to spend so much like going for, I, again, I'm so like usually healthy and exercising that my five, my favorite way to catch up with girlfriends in any city that I've lived in, like London, Vancouver, LA, New York, Toronto, wherever, San Francisco, I love to meet a girlfriend in on like a Saturday or Sunday morning and just go for a walk and get a tea together or like get some sort of go to the new matcha place or something like yeah. that. Where it's like, yeah, it's, you're spending $7 on a matcha latte, a little ridiculous, but you don't have to do the whole brunch scene and like brunch is 60 bucks or 50 bucks. Like you can still do cool things with your friends and enjoy time with them, but just mm-hmm. be really cognizant of the reason why you're doing it because you have other goals that maybe doesn't align with theirs. So you might have to be the one to make the suggestions to do other things. Yeah. And I think it's sometimes really ridiculous how you can go to a restaurant and the drinks is just $15, you know, like that's that's like, for sure. New York, (laughs) they're both wild. And what's funny, something I've noticed here in New York, and you can give me a comment if it's the same in DC. A lot of the times the, either the restaurant will only allow you to pay on one credit card. So you can't split the bill. Yeah. Everybody just puts their credit card in the middle at the end of the meal. And again, because I've always kind of been the person that like, okay, I had a later lunch today or I had a snack before I came here, so I'm not starving. Mm -hmm. But everybody else had like two orders of guacamole to share. They all ordered an appetizer salad and they all ordered an entree. Mm -hmm. And I just had like a tuna tartare appetizer. And now (laughs) we're all – and like they all had one more drink than me. And like I would think about this in my head even at this age, even in my 30s. And I'm like, okay, so everybody owes 190 and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I only spent 60 bucks. Yeah. And it's so awkward. Like, it's those situations. And then, you know, it's like, what do you do? Do you say something? Do you not? And like, it honestly is up to you to say something. But tell me, like, do do people in D.C. do that? Like, everybody just always splits the bill? Because I ran into that so many times here so far. And it's just Yes. So, um, on my birthday, we went to this uh, restaurant in D.C. And you know, everybody either split a meal because they weren't that hungry or um, everybody had their own entree or they split a meal and stuff. And then when we got our check, it was on one check. And we asked the waiter, like, can you split it? And like on each meal, right? And they're like, no, we can't do that. Or um, they were like, oh, or actually we can, but you just have to do the math for us. So (laughs) we spent sitting, like we spent at least five minutes sitting there sorting out our credit cards and like splitting the numbers and the tip and stuff. And it was just a fiasco, but yeah, that's something that they do. But like, if you're the person that's sitting at the table, but only had one drink and an appetizer and everybody else did two and two, you're going to be like, thank (laughs) God somebody said something, right? Cause you don't want to be the one that has to pay. I saw the most egregious example of this. This is horrific. I saw this at, I was at a girl's birthday party. There was, you know, 10 of us or 12 of us at this like really expensive place in New York city last fall. And there was one girl that came at the end and she was a, a coworker of the girls whose birthday it was. So none of the, the rest of us were all kind of like the same little group of girls that hang out together, but this girl didn't know anyone. She came really late after work. 
she sat down and she sort of like, you know, picked at, again, I'll use like guacamole as an example. She picked at like the guacamole in the middle of the table and she had one drink. The rest mm-hmm. of us had been there for three hours drinking margaritas, having like multiple appetizers to share. We all had entrees. And this was like one night I was just going like full out too because it was a very good friend's <laughs> birthday. And at the end of the night, like 45 minutes later, because she got there so late, the bill comes, one bill, middle of the table. Every single person just throws their card in. And this girl was sitting right next to me, which is why I noticed how much she came late and sat down right next to me. And she put her card in the middle of the table. She had one drink. And the bill for us was like 220 bucks. She paid that much money for one drink. And I was just and like, I was, it's not my job to say something for her. But I, I was just looking like, holy crap, like this is a real thing. Like people actually just do this and don't say anything. I mean, if I, even, I thought like the birthday girl should have said, hey, you, you just got here. Don't worry about it. Like, like between the other 10 of us, we all could have paid for her drink a dollar each and like, yeah. not care, right? <laughs> yeah. But they let her pay the same amount as everybody else. I honestly just like couldn't believe it. So it's stuff yeah. like that too. Like you really have to, when you're in your 20s and in your 30s and like really getting into your real money-making years, which for most people is not until your mid thirties and later that you're really at the height of your career. And when you're really building upon that, when you're younger, like you have to learn how to stand up for yourself and what mm-hmm. your priorities are. And you're, no one ever has to be rude about it, but just be like, you know, before you can kind of wait a minute, see if anybody else says anything. And if they don't just be like, Oh, you guys. So do you mind if I just Venmo one of you? Because I only had a couple drinks. Like say, say something like that because a lot of people are so financially unaware. I swear to you, eight out of the 10 other girls sitting at that table probably did not even think about it versus I was sitting right next to her. And mm-hmm. because of who I am and what I do, I thought about it immediately, but it wasn't my place to, to say something for her. Um, and that thing, everybody, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of like, thanks girl. Like you ended up paying for some of my dinner. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. You, everybody has to be their own biggest advocate when it comes to money and finances, because it is somewhat of an uncomfortable conversation for most people. And nobody's going to teach you these things. Nobody's going to advocate for you for that raise to save more money to start investing. No one's going to do any of that for you, except for you. Like even your parents, your parents can't get you a raise. Your parents can't like start investing in an investment account for you. They can do that when you're younger, like Mm -hmm. when you're a kid but not mm-hmm. when you're an adult. Like you have to do this stuff yourself. Yeah, especially because I feel like growing up money, I, I feel like for most people, people think talking about money is so taboo. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I don't know. I think sometimes people just don't want to be like an embarrassment and just like say those little things. But you can honestly, like what you said, just like ask a friend and be like, hey, can I just Venmo you like my amount, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, yeah you just, It's just all about you know, the tone and how you say things. And if it's just sort of matter of factly, like, oh, you guys, I just had a couple of drinks. So I'll just Venmo someone like who, who wants the Venmo. And then everyone's yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, I guess we should recognize that not everybody, you know, had the same thing. I mean, not to, you don't nitpick, obviously, if everybody generally yeah. had the same thing, just split it. But, yeah, I agree. But yeah, you got to be your own advocate. Definitely, definitely. Um, do you have any advice for people to stay on top of their bills, especially if they have like multiple credit cards and multiple due dates to like keep them on track? So um, I'm sure there are apps out for that, but mm-hmm. um, like things like Mint and stuff, Mint is an app that people use to track their different accounts. Um, mm-hmm. But the problem with those apps um, is that every time you give your credit card information, or your bank account information to a third-party service or provider like an app and you give them access because they get access to your banking so that they can track all your transactions and then they say hey you spent you know 40 percent of your spending was on clothing stores this month or groceries or whatever and it helps you to analyze that way but the problem when you give your part your information to a third party is that if something ever happens to your bank account, like say your credit card gets stolen online and someone buys like a $1,000 TV online at Costco on your card, and that's sort of like the typical type of scam that happens when mm-hmm. your card gets compromised, 
The bank won't reimburse you if you voluntarily given your information to a third party source because they can say, they can say, Oh, well you are using the mint app. You, you gave them your banking login, which has all of your bank information within it. So Uh like it could have been a compromisation through that account. So we're not going to give you, we're not going to cover you for bank fraud. So wow. I didn't know that. You know what? I actually heard that on a podcast a couple of years ago from another expert um, financial advisor friend of mine uh, here uh-huh. in the city, and I that was and that was back when Mint was like really really popular. It was sort of the first new fintech app to help mm-hmm. people with spending, and I was like, wow, that totally makes sense. But I would have never thought about it if I didn't hear that myself on a podcast. So I like pod. I call myself the podcast queen because I listen to all <laughs> podcasts for learning. Um, which I'm assuming is why you started your own podcast too. Yeah. So yeah, no, definitely. I don't, so I don't actually use apps for that. What I do, cause I even have, I have six credit cards. I have Mm -hmm. four personal ones. uh, I don't know, seven. I think I have four personal ones and three for my corporations, like business cards. And yeah, they all have different due dates every month. There's no real easy way around it. But what I just did is on my calendar, um, on my outlook and on my Gmail, I just mm-hmm. added a recurring monthly reminder for each one and color coded it in red. So whenever I open my calendar on my phone or on my computer, which is multiple times every day, I always see when each one is due. And then I'm just vigilant about logging in online and paying it because some banks, I have had some of my bank accounts set up before to have automatic payments to my credit card. Mm-hmm. So you can do that. But if you don't consistently have a ton of cash just sitting in your account, you might forget to like move things around or like if you have two different checkings accounts or something to like make sure you have money in the other one because it's going to get auto paid from the Mm -hmm. credit card. And if the auto pay bounces, the bank charges you a lot of money. They charge you like 50 Mm -hmm. bucks or something. But if you plan on having like, you know, a consistent amount of cash in that account, like you have a direct deposit going to it from your job every month and you're keeping your expenses low, you know that you're living within your means, then yeah, the easiest thing to do is just call your bank and say, I want to have this credit card on auto pay every month, take it out of this checking account. And yeah, for most banks, you have to set that up with them over the phone by calling the number on the back of the card. So yeah, either set up auto pay through the bank for your credit cards or just make a recurring reminder in your calendar. Okay. I like the advice that you gave about the third party thing because I didn't know about that. And there's a lot of people who are promoting those type of apps to, you know, keep track. So that's very helpful information to know. And that may change. But, you know, the last I heard that was still a case that you did make a claim to the bank for some sort of loss on your debit card or your credit card um, that you won't be reimbursed because you gave your information to a third party. Interesting. So I remember you mentioned that it may look bad in the eyes of a creditor if you have too many credit cards or, you know, credit allowance. And so I would love for you to explain to the listeners why that is. Mm -hmm. So like a few, I would say the biggest things about credit and how Mm -hmm. to maintain good credit is, yeah, don't go and open a lot of people think okay the more credit I have the better so if I can get 10 approved by 10 different credit cards at Macy's Bloomingdale Citibank Capital One blah 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 whatever and across all of them I have a hundred thousand dollars let's say you have 10 cards with ten thousand dollar limit on each you have a hundred thousand dollars available first of all you shouldn't be that motivated unless you're doing this (laughs) most people are doing that kind of thing to get the sign up bonus rewards But most of the bonus rewards have some sort of minimum spend attached for the first three months to be able to get that bonus reward points or cash or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're, they're pushing you to spend money on the card in the first three months, which a lot of it is probably money. If you're opening that many cards, you don't need to be spending that much money anyway. But yeah, let's say you had a hundred thousand dollar available credit limit across all your credit cards. The ideal that it's called the um, utilization rate the ideal mm-hmm. utilization rate of all of your credit is 10 to 30%. So creditors want to see that you're using around 10 to 30% of your available credit every month. You're paying it off on time in full every month. And that's sort of a good schedule for them to have. Because as soon as you go over 30% or over 50%, 
generally it starts negatively affecting your credit score because creditors will look at that and say, oh, well, you know, she has $100,000 available. She's running a, a balance of like $50,000. She's spending $50,000 every month. Like she's kind of getting closer to her credit limit. Mm-hmm. And maybe that maybe that means she's not as credit worthy. But the problem is like if you have $100,000 because you opened up all these credit cards because you wanted to get the bonus signups or whatever, and you're only spending $2,500 a month, which is still a lot of money to spend as a, just one person, um, your utilization rate is so low that that also goes negatively against your, your credit history. So just think of that 10 to 30%. So look at your expenses every month. If you're like, okay, I spend about $1,000 a month, then having two different credit cards that have a maximum um, spend of, you know, availability of $5,000 each, so a $10,000 total mm-hmm. is great. So yeah, like have a $10,000 total between two or three cards and spend about 1000 to to 3000 of that a month, just staying within that 10 to 30%. The biggest thing though with credit really is like paying your, your credit card bills on time every month in full, like paying the whole balance off. And that's obviously how you don't incur interest charges as well. Because yeah. credit cards are awesome to build your credit and to like give you that available money per se or credit in advance on the cards you can use it for you know online purchases and and whatever and all the perks that sometimes come with cards but you just have to think like a business person like no credit card company is giving you a credit card the same thing goes for zero balance transfers people always ask about this like the the credit cards that are promoted zero balance transfer like where they're basically trying to ask you to um, transfer all your debt from your other credit cards, your balances that are rolling over with interest on your other credit cards at, let's say, 20%. They say transfer those all over to us, and they they work it out with the other banks to transfer the balances over to them at 0% for usually like three months or 12 months or whatever it is, some promotional time period where you don't have to pay any more interest. That's great if and only if you are absolutely certain that you are going to pay off the entire balance of all the cards you're transferring to that one card that has the $0 balance or the 0% interest balance for that certain amount of time. As long as you can pay it off at the end of that promotional term, great. The problem is so many people go into that and they're like, yeah, I have $5,000 in debt. I can easily pay this off in the first three months while I have this 0% promotion. They say that at the beginning, but then... One, they usually forget when the three months is over. They didn't put a reminder on their calendar. They didn't make actionable steps to change their lifestyle and stop spending so much. So they really actually do pay that off in time. And then once the promotional period is over, it usually goes from like, let's say your old cards that had the old balances were 20%. That 0% balance promotional card after the promotional time period has like a 26% interest rate or like way higher than even yeah. the ones that you had before were. And that's, <laughs> you know, they're this is a business. Like, that's how they make money. They're not giving you a 0%. This is for any business transaction. What is the other side getting? They're getting you as a customer, initially at 0%, no interest. After three months, after a year, whatever, they're banking. This is how they are making money. They are banking on the fact that you are not going to pay that balance off at 0%. That's they're bet they're betting against you and they're saying, hey, we'll give you this little freebie. Good luck. Try to pay it off in the time that we're giving you. But if not, we're just gonna charge you more interest than the last guy did. So, like everything you just have to think of as a business transaction. What is the other side getting? And yeah, they're not giving that to you to be nice. So 10, 10 to 30% <laughs> utilization rate, pay your balances off on time every month in full. And if you look at doing a zero percent. Um, interest transfer to a new card with a promotion like that, really, really make sure that you have a solid plan as to why you're doing that and how you're going to be able to pay the whole balance off in that promotional time that they're giving you 0%. That's great advice. I mean, it's so easy to, you know, um, knock down your interest or your credit rate, uh, credit score compared to building it back up. It takes so long to build up your credit score, but so easy to just knock it down. Yeah. So that's good no, advice. I, say it, I actually just, what did I do? I think it was today or yesterday. I can't remember what day it was. I posted, I did a post on Instagram about credit uh-huh. and like the best ways to 
gain credit because I've been, I've only been living in the U S permanently with a social security number for a year now. Mm -hmm. And because I was always just, I was here for six months a year before, but I was just doing meetings with clients and providing services. But my corporation that has all the money and everything that's based out of Canada. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually need a social security number here. And um, so when I moved here last August, I had a zero, like I had a zero credit. I had no credit. (laughs) I had never had a social security number before, which is how they track your credit. So I got a secured card at first. I gave, you know, I have a Bank of America account. This is the same at all major banks. They say, okay, well, you're not credit worthy yet. Um, You have a bad credit score or you have no credit history or whatever their reasoning. But here, get this secured card. So a secured card, I wrote about this in the book too, you give them a deposit. So I gave them $2,000 and then they sent me a card and they said, okay, this is, it's basically like a debit card. They're like, you can spend Mm -hmm. up to $2,000 and then you have to keep paying it off like a regular credit card every month. But they know that at the end of the day, if you max that balance out to $2,000, they already have your $2,000. So there's, there's no risk to them. So that's called a secured card. So really, if you're just entering, like if you're in your early 20s, you've never had a credit card before, you didn't get one at the fair at freshman week at school or whatever, because a lot of them offer student cards. Yeah, get a secured card. Or even if you, you know, if you hurt your credit for whatever reason in the past and then cancel those cards and start it over, you know, most people that start over after bankruptcy and stuff like that, they have to get a secured card. And like, none of this is shameful. Like I'm literally was a best-selling author in financial literacy and I still have a secured card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I still have that card, but now I'm a preferred banking member because of my balances and stuff, because of the money I've brought to the bank. And I still have a secure card. Like it's, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing, but I've been approved for mortgages down here already. My credit score is already 750. That's and that, that was after, I would say after seven months, I was already oh. above six months or seven months, I was already above 700, which is a great credit score. Yeah. Wow. Coming from nothing. So it's, it's really actually possible to rebuild your credit within, even in the book I wrote within six months to a year, but it's been interesting now having had an actual real life experience for myself that all I did was I had this one secured credit card. I paid it off on time in full every month. I have my at home internet and, and cable I back gets paid on the secured card every month on time and a cell phone bill paid on month on every month on time. And yeah, over, over 706 months. That's great. That's amazing. Wow. So I, I want to ask you, we all know like the importance of having a savings account, but what about a emergency fund? How would I start creating a emergency fund account if I'm already paying myself, um, every paycheck to the savings account. Mm -hmm. So this is where like, you know, when you're first starting to learn about all this stuff and even Mm -hmm. people of any age, because most people, even in their forties, fifties and sixties, a lot of people never learned any of this. There's a lot of like confusion in people's, in the vocabulary and in your mind often between saving and investing. Mm -hmm. So those are two different things. Saving, always just think that is cash. So saving, saving, like what you're talking about, 10 to 20% a month or whatever, it's sitting somewhere in an account, that is your emergency fund. Mm-hmm. So you're, sa- you're saving for your emergency fund or your cash cushion, I call it, a cash cushion for times like now, like if you got laid off um, yeah. uh, or furloughed without any pay for the next six months, like what the F are you going to do? Like mm-hmm. you got that cash somewhere. Or, you know, you'd be lucky if you can go home and live with your parents for a while, but then you'd still have no money. Mm-hmm. So that this is really a great conversation for when you're going from being in school with no income and starting a job where you actually have consistent income. Um, and then to be able to prepare yourself as, as an independent adult um, at any age to have to have some money in the bank for emergencies. So Usually, um, most experts advise having three to six months, like right now, you know, in a regular economy, um, not COVID related, having three months is probably fine, like three months of your basic needs of living. So again, like housing costs, transportation, food, um, cell phone bill, anything else that's like a mandatory expense of every month, you should have three months of cash just Mm -hmm. sitting. So you haven't put that in your company 401k, you haven't invested it, 
you just save it. So this is the difference. So saving is cash. Mm -hmm. Investing is what you do with the cash after, like putting it into your company 401k or in Canada, they call that an RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Fund. And your company hopefully gives you some sort of match for that, for your savings, that kind of thing. That's actually what you do with the savings after you you get the cash. It's investing it. But yeah, you really have to start off at that place where you know that, again, if you get laid off, you have some a cash cushion sitting there to support you for at least a few months. Like with COVID right now, it'd be great to have six months. Mm-hmm. Um, for people that are freelancers, like, yeah, you're doing your own design business or you're in, in the arts or music or something like that. Um, you're a writer and you're doing freelance writing. Freelancers have to have more. Like they really should have six to nine months of cash sitting on the sidelines. And because there are a lot of gig economy people and that are millennials and even younger, um, I think that's really important to know too, that as a freelancer, someone that doesn't have employment benefits, you really need to save up more than everybody else. It's hard, but you know, so for a lot of people to start with that initial cash cushion, it might take you a year to save it. And then after you've done that and you're not living paycheck to paycheck anymore and you have a good cushion there for, you know, hard times, Mm -hmm. um, then you can start investing and then move on to the investment piece. And none of this, none of this is even applicable if you have credit card debt. If you have credit card debt, paying that off comes before anything. That comes before a cash cushion of savings. That comes before like everything because credit card interest rate is just, it'll spiral out of control so fast and get so big so fast. It's interest on top of interest. You're paying interest on the interest every month you pay your credit card bill. Yeah. It's, it's the compounding interest effect to the negative. Most people think about compounding interest as a positive thing, like in your investments, having money in your savings account, even though interest rates are so low right now and we're talking in August, 2020. But yeah. So just think about saving as cash, investing is what you do with the cash. Um, and also where you keep that money. That's also really important too. Again, right now, interest rates for you know having your money in the bank or somewhere, anywhere, they're really low everywhere. Yeah. Um, but the best place to keep your cash cushion, your emergency savings for that three to nine months of your, your needs and your expenses is to say, for example, your job or like your paychecks from clients they get deposited into your main bank account at Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo, whoever your main bank is. From there, what you should do with that money is transfer it to an online high interest savings account. So an example of that is like Ally, A-L-L-Y. I don't work with them or anything, um, but they're just a really well-known online only bank. And so these Mm -hmm. online only savings accounts, they're free they usually have a zero balance minimum, so you can put whatever money you want in there. They usually have zero fees. You sign up for the account online, like Ally, and they usually give you about 1% to 2% interest to hold your savings in their bank online versus banks, traditional banks, like the you know, the big brand names I just mentioned, they are giving you like 0.01% right now. Yeah, it's low. <laughs> it's like nothing. Yeah. yeah. So if you are going to have, you know, which everyone should have that cash cushion, at least put it somewhere online in an online only bank. So the reason why they can give you that one to 2% instead of 0%, like the bank, the big banks do, is because they don't have retail outlets. They don't have all the employee overhead. They don't have all those costs of operations. So they're able to give the consumer a little bit more in interest. And then at least that, you know, with that money sitting there at 1% to 2%, it's not quite keeping up with our average targeted inflation rate. So Mm -hmm. inflation is like how your dollar is worth less in 10 years than $1 is worth today. Um, And it's your your purchasing power. Um, So if a dollar today is, is only worth 98 cents next year, you know, you're losing money by just keeping your cash sitting in your regular bank account. So again... Open an online high interest savings account. If you just go to bankrate.com and you search in their high interest savings account or online high interest account, um, they give you a whole spreadsheet and you can sort them by um, 
interest rate to find the highest one. And they update it like every single day. So you can go to bankrate.com and you can find out which, because there's there's dozens of these online banks now, and you can find out which one has the best interest rate. And and then at least, you know, if something does happen, you lose your job, your car breaks down, you have a medical emergency, uh, your dog breaks his leg, you have a veteran emergency and you need access to that cash, you can get it within like 24 hours. Your Wells Fargo account is linked online to your Ally account and you just transfer the money out of Ally into Wells Fargo, go to the bank, pull it out. Wow. Very simple. But yeah, I agree. People would really just have to do their research in terms of the savings account interest rate to see what best fits them. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned investing and I love talking about investment right now because I just recently got started with investments. Um, so I remember in your book, you said that, you know, there are people who believe that investing is risky. And I was one of those persons or person people who thought investing is risky um, because you just don't know what the market's going to be like, especially if you don't have too much knowledge in finance. And so you also mentioned that, you know, putting your money in a savings account or sometimes even CDs account, especially right now, the interest rate is not that high and it's not um, keeping up with the targeted in inflation. So what is your uh, recommendation for people to you know, do the research on the market and start investing themselves, finding the right investing style for them. Mm -hmm. So the best way to really like just the basics to start investing is mm -hmm. for most people that do have some kind of full-time job, almost every single employer offers a 401k program in the US or RSP in Canada. Um, like, do you just, for example, use you as an example, yeah. do you have a 401k? Like, do you have availability of one? No, my company does not provide a 401k. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually, that's a good example because for you, it's a little harder mm -hmm. because you actually have to do all the work yourself. Yeah. So, um, what you can do, I mean, especially in your twenties, everybody should set up, you know, especially, so if you do have a 401k program through your employer, start with that. And usually your employer does like a, a match of up to 3% or 6%, which is free money. So that's great. So if you have that availability, always start with that and max that out first, because again, that's free money. Mm -hmm. um, I literally am talking about this on my Instagram stories right now. I like posted <laughs> it yesterday, I think. So yeah, always take the free money first and then open your own independent investment accounts after. For you, for example, because you don't have a 401k program available through your company, um, it's possible to actually open your own 401k program. But as someone who's younger and still has the availability to use an account called a Roth IRA, mm -hmm. that's the kind of investment account I would suggest for you to open. So a Roth is good for younger people because there's an income maximum on it. So I believe it's $132,000 for 2020. So if you make less than $132,000 a year, you're, you are able to contribute to your Roth 401k up to a certain amount. I think it's like $5,500 a year or something. Um, and you can open up a Roth account for investing. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you choose what exact kind of things to put in this account once you've actually taken the step to go and open it? Here's the first Here's the first point of feedback on that. <laughs> Most people don't even take the steps. It takes them years. Like you are way far in advance for the questions you're asking right now, which is great <laughs> because most people, it will take them until they're 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33 to actually even open a Robinhood account or mm -hmm. a Fidelity account, a Charles Schwab account, a um, E-Trade. I use E-Trade, an E-Trade account all these different platforms for discount online investing. It's called like an online brokerage. It's kind of like the investing form of Ally. Like they're online only, they're um, cheap to use. Most of them, it's a free account to have. You can buy and sell individual stocks or ETFs, which are exchange traded funds. They're just a fund of a bunch of stocks. So you get a little bit more diversification within the fund and you can buy and sell them for free on these accounts. Um, and yeah, for every individual situation, figuring out what kind of account to open, like a Roth IRA, a regular IRA, a, um, or a fully, uh, just regular account, which is just fully taxable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's kind of the hard thing to figure out for most people. That's sort of like a financial planning thing, but there's lots of articles, bloggers, like really great financial advisors that have articles on this. Like if you go to investopedia.com, they've been around since the eighties. They write definitions, examples, and amazing articles that are very well vetted. I, the editor in chief there I've known for many years and he's been the editor in chief there for 25 years. Um, so they have really great quality writers. So Investopedia, like going to a website like that and just reading the differences between those three accounts and like figuring out which one to open. Like, cause when you go to fidelity or etrade.com and it says join here, you have to immediately click. Do you want the Roth IRA account, the regular IRA account or like what a regular account? Like you have to open up, you have to know right away. Yeah. So that's the first research you have to do. Now, if you've already opened one, now you have to figure out, okay, you opened the account, you linked your Wells Fargo account or your Bank of America Bank of America account to your trading account, just like you did for Ally to get your emergency savings into a high interest online account. You got to link them again so you can fund the investing account. Now you're sort of back to the same thing. Like, okay, so like now I can see on this platform, it's like ent- you enter a ticker here, which is the the code for the stock or the fund you want to buy, you actually have to start investing on your own. So that's where it's called like portfolio construction. What mm-hmm. what stocks or investments do you want in your portfolio? Um, there's a lot of experts that say, and I, I agree with this as well, that your first $10,000 of investing should be in index funds. So like SPY, that I think that might be the biggest... ETF exchange traded fund, the biggest fund in the world. That's the spider, like the 500, it covers the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is an index and there are many different funds from all the major shops that they have a fund like SPY, SPY, if you type in the little ticker, even just to Google, if you type in SPY, like mm-hmm. Yahoo Finance will come up, Morningstar will come everything will come up with all of these different you know, blurbs and reports and buy, sell, hold on SPY, the fund. Um, And it just covers the S&P 500, which is the 500 biggest public companies in the U.S. So if you've saved up a thousand bucks over and above your credit cards, you've paid them all off, your emergency fund, you have that saved in an online account. Now you're starting to invest and you're doing your own investing most people say that having your first $10,000 in an index fund like that, like SPY, and this is not a recommendation, just an example, um, but you know, some index funds that cover the S&P 500, the Dow 30, that's another index, the Dow, which if you ever watch CNBC all day long, it's the Dow, the S&P, the S&P, the Dow, the Dow, the NASDAQ, yeah. and the NASDAQ is that's another index. You can buy a fund, an index fund, just Google NASDAQ index funds and you will find a whole list of them with their tickers and information about how much they cost, what their little fees are, management fees and stuff, which for ETFs, they're all really low, which is why people love index ETFs. Um, The management fees are usually like 0.15%, 0.05%. Like they're almost free to own Mm -hmm. them and you buy and sell them for free on the platform. So investing is pretty much free for a lot of people these days. Buy some of these index funds. And the reason why is you're, you're putting that, say, first $10,000 of your investing just into index funds. And when you're doing that, as a long-term investor, which all of us should be, you should be doing this for, you know, into your 30s and 40s and building, 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 compounding interest in a positive way. You're buying index funds that cover any of those ones are American-based. So it's S&P 500 is all American companies, the Dow 30, the top 30 companies the biggest 30 companies that are listed, that's all American companies. The NASDAQ is all American tech companies, tech-based companies. You're buying those index funds because you believe that in 10 years, the U.S. economy and those companies are all going to prosper. And in having them in a fund like that, again, you get nice diversification that you're, you're betting on the whole bucket not just one. Like, so if you're going out, a lot of people will just be like, okay, I have to buy stocks now, like individual stocks and analyzing like one company's balance sheet, their price earnings ratios, there are all these different things like in terms of technical fundamental analysis of an individual company is much harder to do 
than just say, you know what, I am just going to buy some index funds that cover the U.S. economy, you know, maybe get one that's an emerging markets ETF mm-hmm. index fund, um, because there's all these indexes have been built to track something like there's an emerging markets index that's been built. Um, and then the goal of that fund is to perform the same every year as that index. So the goal of the SPY fund is to perform the same as the S&P 500, the 500 biggest companies on the New York Stock Exchange every single year. So sometimes it's going to go up and sometimes it's going to go down, but you can't be afraid when you see that. Um, Like, you know, this year, March, everything went down 30%. Yeah. You might log into your account and you're like, holy shit, why (laughs) did I buy that that index account? The whole market just went down. But today, the S&P just closed at an an annual high again today. So in six months, it it went all the way down in March and now it's gone all the way back up again. And when you're buying an index fund, that's what you're betting on. You're betting on that you're going to be riding the waves, but... At the end of the 10 years, the wave, it's gone up. Yeah, and that's the trend because, like, there's going to be little ups and downs, but it's always the upward, like, generally, it's always an upward trend going up with little yeah. dips in the in the trend. Yeah. Um, but and just, uh, I'll add one note to that. The average yeah. returns of the S&P 500 over the last 50 to 100 years has been 10% every year. So if you're buying index funds, a safe number to sort of think of in your head, like with that that first 10000 in in your savings and you're investing on your own, put it into index funds and like an index that covers the U.S. economy like that, the S&P 500, you can think safely in your head that over time, like this year, okay, it might be down 3%, but next year it's going to be up 18%. And then it's going to balance out to be about 10% every year. Yeah. Definitely. Um, And so one last question I have for you um, is that, you know, people like to sometimes be invest in stocks and buy low, then sell high immediately to earn some quick bucks. But you also mentioned that people end up losing money when they do that. So your tip is to buy it and hold it. So I would love for you to give us like insight as to how people who do quick, you know, turnarounds may actually end up losing money and why that is. So I think that this is such a hot topic right now because everybody's talking about like people your age and like the Robin Hood traders, the new young (laughs) retail investors and retail investing. Like when they say retail on TV, if you ever hear that, that Mm -hmm. just means like individual investors, like people at home with bank accounts and stuff versus institutional investors, which is like the banks that are buying the stocks, the hedge funds are buying the stocks. Those are institutions that are investing versus us, which is we're retail investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to, again, this is another good point in business and the stock market is a business. Someone is always buying and someone is always selling. When you're 21, 22, 52, whatever age you are, sitting at home and you're going to buy Here's like a contrarian example. Say Boeing just, you know, in March, Boeing went down to $92. It was like $400 last year. So Boeing crashed and you're like, you know what? I think I should buy Boeing today because, or let's, sorry, I should change my example. It's the end of February and Boeing is already gone down all of last year um, to 150 bucks. And you're like, Mm -hmm. you know what? Like, planes are coming back. Like this is when, so for example, nobody knew COVID was going to happen in March was when it really hit North America. So it's February. You're like, whoa, Boeing is already down like 300 bucks in the last year. There's no way this is the bottom. Like this must be the bottom. It's gone down so far. I'm going to buy Boeing because like this is it. So I I personally, I did this. I I bought some Boeing. Someone was selling it to me though. And you like who's sell who's selling those shares to me? Hmm. It could be someone that just needed the cash. It could be an institution, an analyst that saw that in Asia something was happening, something was starting. Three weeks later, that stock went from like one seventy to ninety two. If I wasn't in it for the long term, and guess what? I did at ninety two. I bought more because mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm a Boeing investor for like after all of this is over with the airplanes and with the software crisis they've had with their seven uh, 
their max airplane. I've always been in, in it for the long term. But if I had planned for that, just be like, oh, a little quick trade. Wow, it came down so far. It's February. It's like 170. It's going to be back to 300 in like, you know, six months. They're going to have the plane fixed. You know, they're going to be buying the plane again. Airlines, it's all going to be good. Went down to 92. It's still now, eight months later, it's still only at like 170. You would barely be back up. And who knows what other plans are, other investment opportunities you could have had with that money in the meantime. So you always have to think someone is on the other side of that. And it's Mm -hmm. probably not another retail investor because the amount of money that's in the stock market for individual investors as compared to institutions, banks, analysts, people who have access to high frequency trading, high frequency traders, professional traders. Do you really think, and I, I don't think this, this is why I'm saying this, I don't have the knowledge, the analysis skills, the insider technical information, um, the wherewithal of that entire industry as a whole to buy that with the conviction, knowing that the person on the other side of this trade knows less than me. Mm -hmm. I I tend to think the person on the other side of this trade is very, just by statistics, it's probably not a retail investor. It's probably someone from an institution somewhere that is hoping to to get the better deal. And they're probably going to be right if it's just a trade. So there's like day traders, which are actually in and out of stuff all day, every day. Um, that used to be a really big thing, like back in the 80s and the 90s. But more so in the last 20 years, and this is kind of what happened with the, the mortgage crisis and the big financial crisis 10 years ago, is this term that I use like high frequency trading. So technology's gotten faster. Trading's gotten faster. The computers for trading for institutions is so freaking fast. Like, do you think that on news, when news comes out that second, those high frequency traders, they already have an order that's in and maybe six hours later, an hour later, you're the little retail guy trying to get in on that trade. It's already gone. Like you just, there's, I don't think, I think it's more important as a young person or any person, but particularly for young people, Focus on your income sources, focus on getting a raise, focus on getting a better job, focus on spending less money so you have more money to invest for the long term. I don't think that you should spend hours of your day trying to beat the professionals and the institutions because 99.9% of people are losing. You might have a a couple quick bucks here and there in the volatile markets like we've had last six months, but like, let's be honest, if it was that easy, everybody would freaking be doing it and and advisors financial advisors would be at home doing it you don't see them advising people to go (laughs) start day trading and the reason why is because you're pretty much hopeless against computers and against Mm -hmm. institutional traders that have the volume to get a better deal and the volume to wipe out retail traders at any moment so totally against it But I mean, the reason why I got into finance is because when I was like 18, 19, I loved watching those movements. I loved watching CNBC and the hype and like, oh, I just made 500 bucks today. Like (laughs) it's exciting, but like try to keep it on a long-term basis because truly if day trading was that profitable or attainable, not even easy because I think everyone that's trying to do it is still putting work into it. Mm -hmm. But if it was that possible even, so many more people would be doing it and not just selling freaking YouTube video programs and Instagram, like all that is crap. Those people are not spending time on Instagram teaching other people how to trade because they're worth millions of dollars. Long-term investing, long-term real estate, those things make you a millionaire. Day trading and selling some $50 course on Instagram is not. I guarantee you those people do not have the same kind of money as the institutional guys do. And that's why the institutional guys are not trying to teach people how to day trade because it's not possible. It's not possible to make significant money doing it. That's great advice. Well, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you, Leanna, for your time coming on here and sharing your advice. I will put Leanna's contact information in the show notes for you all if you want to connect with her. Um, Again, thank you, Leanna, for coming on this podcast today. Of course. And I do have one last thing. I know I threw out mm-hmm. so much information today, probably <laughs> more than I thought I was going to. But my team and I have a really awesome free resource that we've just launched last week. I think that you did it. Did you do that? No, it was someone else. 
Sorry, I was just thinking. I was I was on a podcast <laughs> a couple nights ago too, and she did it. And you guys look a little bit the same, actually. Really? Um, both young, pretty girls uh, that uh, are. <laughs> and it's called our thirty second Fin IQ quiz, mm-hmm. and it tells you at the end what your financial persona is. It's based on basically your financial knowledge. It's four questions, and in, after four questions, we'll tell you whether you're a rainmaker, which is the number, like the best one you could be, a rainmaker, a hustler, which is the next one down, or a bull in training. So those are our three personas. It's a 30-second quiz. And if you just go to the link in my bio at Leanna, L-E-A-N-N-A underscore H-A-W-K, Leanna underscore Hawk on Instagram, it's at the link in the bio. And yeah, take this 30-second quiz and you can find out like how much you really know. Like you might, the thing is with financial literacy, 24%, 24%, only 24% of millennials are actually considered to be financially literate on the mm-hmm. basics. But also from, this is a, a U.S. like census uh, information they collected a couple of years ago, but 69% of them thought that they knew the basics. So it's kind of a good way to test yourself and send it to your friends and family and, you know, see if you guys are on the same page and just kind of get an idea of how much you really know versus what you thought you knew in these four four questions, 30 second quiz. And then we give you some resources at the end, like, you know, different websites and stuff you can look at to, to read about depending on where you're at. That's great. I'll leave that also in the show notes. So it's easy for people to click on and uh, take the quiz. But yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Hello 20s. Let's get connected and continue our conversation over on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links are in the show notes, so you're only one click away. I hope to see you there, and I'll talk to you guys in my next episode.